Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick Push Pivot Podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth. And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones, focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen. All right, welcome everybody back to another episode of Kick Push Pivot. Uh, I'm here as always with my co-host, Mr. Pete Mackey. Say what's up to the people, Pete. Good to be back on the show. Good to see Alex and like that haircut. Looking good. Good to have you as always, Pete. And for those of you that can't see, Pete is wearing a very cute shirt today. It's full of oh, American boy, flags go. and uh, <laughs> stylish dad dad swag yeah. over there. Face made for radio. <laughs> my best. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we got a great show for you today. We have Daniel C. Diaz here uh, from Golden State Dermatology. How's it going, Dan? Doing very well today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Appreciate you being on the show. So Dan, uh, for the viewers out there, our listeners, is the Vice President of Network Development and Physician Services for Golden State Dermatology, which is a medical group um, here in in California, and we can get a little bit more into that. Um, I guess just to start off, Dan, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what Golden State Dermatology is, what you guys do, and and a little bit more specifically what you provide for them as well? Yeah, great, great place to start. So Golden State Dermatology is a network of dermatology clinics. It's a single employed, like employed under one model, uh, which is GSD. So all the physicians are employed directly by the medical group, which is Golden State Dermatology. And we have roughly 26 clinical locations through the Bay Area and the Central Valley of California, somewhere around 70 providers. So combination of dermatologists, most surgeons, plastic surgeons, your nurse practitioners, physician assistants, all providing dermatology care under that umbrella. Um, yeah, and done a lot of growth over the last five years and looking to continue to grow over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, for sure. And so basically what you guys do for the physicians is you bring them all into one group, you kind of centralize the business functions so that all that's taken care of and they can sort of just focus on their practice and, uh, treating patients. Is that right? Yeah. So there's really two primary, two primary ways we grow. Um, one would be by way of acquisition. And I think the value proposition there for a physician who's been in private practice, let's say for 25, 30 years, thinking about the, the latter stage of their career, how they're going to end this, what, what their exit looks like. We tend to be a good option for folks in that category. Doesn't mean that's all exclusive, what we exclusively focus on. But mm-hmm. certainly the, we're a great platform for a physician, again, looking to you know retire in the next three to five years, looking for a partner kind of pass on that legacy to us. We take over the management of the business. So going back to the value proposition for them, it's we're gonna remove all the administrative burdens, the Mm -hmm. HR functions, billing, staffing, et cetera, and just really kind of reducing them down to just being a doctor. I think that's what people are really looking Mm -hmm. for. And whether you're 65 or 45, and maybe you've been in business for five to 10 years and you're in private practice, maybe you've already had enough. And you realize the financial pressures, at least in the Bay Area, are becoming so overwhelmingly large and hard to overcome that you kind of do want a partner. But you don't want to give up 
what it means to be in private practice, which really boils down to having autonomy and flexibility and not being in a really right. rigid system. So that, that's what we're really trying to provide for, for folks out there in the community looking for a partnership. Yeah, totally. And I feel like that's so important because as Pete and I hear a lot, you know, these doctors, they go to school for seven, eight, 10 years, whatever it may be, uh, studying medicine, but nobody really ever teaches them how to run a business. So a lot of times they really need that help. Someone that understands the billing and understands HR and, you know, how to run a business where a lot of them just really want to focus on, on their care of the patients. They don't want to focus on that. 100%, 100%. And I would say the other, the other way we grow is by De Novo, um, which could be opening up a new building or in a medical office building in a new community that we're looking to grow into. And then we just hire physicians, let's say out of training or already in practice, but not coming with their own practice, who haven't been in business for themselves uh, and recruiting them into a, a clinical space. And we do a lot of that all over the network just by way of having you know natural attrition, retirements, people leave. And so you're all constantly recruiting into your clinics uh, by way of that, you know, by, by way of those departures, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's got to be hard also to get a dermatologist to change jobs or change roles, especially if they've already been established. You know, <clears throat> rumor has it, this is a dad joke warning. The reason for go. that, reason for that is they don't want to make rash decisions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boom, boom, boom. That's, All right. That, moving that on. Good. That was good. We started early today. We started the joke today. matches the shirt, Pete. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, cool. I guess, I, I guess it's something to touch on, on that, you know, as an example. So dermatology, they're, they're probably on the higher end of the income scale for, for let's say physicians or medical providers. Okay. Um, and so we're kind of in the first stages of really seeing the dermatology market consolidate versus as a point of comparison, primary care. Now, primary care physicians, you know, relative to others still make a great living income wise, but they've had, they've been under the gun for a much longer period of time. And so you've almost seen, at least in the Bay Area, you know, it's very, very hard to find private practices, you know, primary care, private practices who are still out there on their own. Most of them have been for lack of a better word, gobbled up by the larger systems yep. that have been doing a lot of the acquisitions and hiring, growing their networks like Stanford and Sutter, at least here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So that that's really hard to find. And I don't think I've heard of anyone in the last you know five, seven years coming out of training as a family practitioner or internist and opening up their own practice in the Bay Area. Um, it would yeah. be at this point virtually impossible to compete uh, and, and keep your business you know running and trying to turn over some sort of margin or profit uh, to go into the next year. So it's a very, very difficult thing to do in this day and age. Definitely. And I want to touch on that, um, here in a bit. There's a lot to, to discuss there, but let's go back and talk about a little bit more about what you do specifically, and maybe a little bit more about your background as well. Yeah. So started how you got into this. Absolutely. We'd be happy to. So my role at Golden State Dermatology, again, Vice President of Network Development Physician Services, you know, we are still in a startup mode, so we all wear a lot of hats. But under the, the network development role, um, really in charge of all the recruitment. So inbound, any candidate you're looking to apply or be a practitioner, whether you're an MPPA, MD or DO, and you want to work at Golden State Dermatology, you'll, you'll come through my door first. Then I'll walk that candidate through the whole entire recruitment process. I'll negotiate the contract with them. I'll write it. I'll introduce them to the credentialing team. You know, they'll introduce the operations team all the way up to the first day of onboarding. And then probably once the first day comes, I kind of like 
you know, wipe my hands clean, absolve myself of my sins, um, and they get transitioned fully into the uh, the operations team. But it's okay. really from start to finish the recruitment process, and then also, you know, along those same lines, any any sort of deal uh, sourcing that we do from an acquisition standpoint. So that entails going to conferences, doing field marketing trips, reaching out to potential practices, following up with them. So it's really about developing as robust of a pipeline as we can, both on the recruitment side and on the acquisition side, and then doing the actual physical work to get those things and bring them to closure. Sure. Sure. And rumor has it that you have kind of a unconventional way that you got into this or that you got into at least the corporate side of things. Maybe you can go back even a little further. Uh, I know you told me you went to UC Irvine. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I went to UC Irvine, um, graduated in 2006. Um, like most of my peers, had no idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I graduated with a philosophy major, which we, we can all agree is, you know, pretty much useless, uh, at least going into the <laughs> corporate or, or business world um, and stumbled just by way of luck, knowing someone I was working at a golf course um, in Irvine throughout college um, and setting up um, weddings. Uh, it was kind of like the banquet di- director had left mm-hmm. us and took a marketing job at a physician recruitment firm, called me and said, hey, Dan, I'm looking for a coordinator. Would you be interested in interviewing? I interviewed took the job and that was kind of my, um, my entrance into physician recruitment in healthcare. And then cool. from there just kind of grew and, you know, climbed the ranks and turned out I was actually, uh, you know, pretty decent at the recruitment thing and it continued to evolve from there. Yeah, nice. for sure. And I'm, and I'm sure those past experiences probably helped you, uh, kind of molded, molded, uh, some of your foundations as far as like talking to people and just uh, relating to people and, you know, holding a conversation and things like that. Um, and by the way, I'm a film major as well. So equally as useless in, in the corporate world. <laughs> I mean, but, you're, yeah. just, you're just trying to get a degree at that point, you know, exactly. and, you know, I, I can say on my resume, yeah, I, I'm a college graduate, but that's about all right. the functions are yeah, yeah, all I really got out of it. Well, the one thing we all have in common is we all appreciate and love the game of golf. And they say golf is life. So I feel like if you can overcome a golf game, you can really get into any career you want because there's a lot of frustration, a lot of trial and error. And I can speak to that candidly as a- And a lot of money. Very, 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 <laughs> na- very nascent golfer. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew awesome. up, funny, funny side story, I grew up playing ice hockey and then got into golf. And my parents looked at me when I was 16, my brother and I and said, you can't play the two most expensive sports in the world. It's time to choose one. <laughs> and uh, we right. ended up both choosing golf and, and that's kind of stuck with us. And it's been great um, from a business standpoint and- Yep. Uh, if you have that in your back pocket, there's a lot of conversations, a lot of deals, and a lot of business that gets done on the golf course. And that's been uh, totally. a, a great thing to have in my back pocket. Yeah. Pete's a great one to have around as well because, you know, the, every all the clients just love playing with them because they just they win all the time. You know? Everybody needs somebody a social to side. You need, you need a, you need a social, a social anchor. Okay. And that's the role I play. Yeah. Everyone needs a comedic cool. break from now. Well, exactly. now <laughs> you want to make exactly. people feel good about their golf game. Then absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. See, you know, you know, my strategy, I probably could work for you. Um, so, so Daniel, tell us about what you're seeing in this, in the industry. We had a couple conversations earlier and it's really fascinating. Your insight I think is kind of unique. Um, yeah. Especially for our audience. Yeah. So I think, you know, I look at it from the vantage point of being a patient. I'm probably completely unaware of everything that's happening behind closed doors in in the healthcare arena. 
And I look at the Bay Area as, as a really great example of probably some of these trends that you're seeing on a national level. But consolidation is at the forefront uh, of everything right now. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, I saw that trend. I saw I spent some time working at Stanford Healthcare. And Stanford Healthcare, you know, has always been in the Bay Area, this tertiary and quaternary referral center. And they're very, very well known. But they do a lot of higher end things. And I'm giving you this as an example or a story because it's going to tie into what we're talking about here. But I think you go back 15 years ago, they had a total of four FTEs of family medicine physicians in the whole entire Stanford Healthcare network. And FTE is a full-time equivalent for the audience. It's you know, mm-hmm. what you measure a, a full-time employee by. Um, and they said, wow, this, this is an issue. You know, If we're going to really survive over the next 25, 30 years, we're going to have to grow our primary care base because a primary care base is really, really where you're going to get the bulk of your referrals. And as the market consolidates around you, it becomes a competition to try to get as large of a referral base as possible. Because if your competitor comes in and starts buying primary care practices, those referrals naturally are going to start going to your competitor. And so Mm -hmm. we saw Stanford do that for five, 10 years. So I spent a lot of time with them uh, on the acquisition, the M&A side. um, And we built a foundation with roughly 350 providers by the time I left throughout the Bay Area. And so consolidation, whether you're at Stanford or, or Sutter or UCSF, it's, it's happening constantly. And it ties in back to our earlier point about primary care practices. Um, you know, it's very, very hard to compete in this day and age. And again, a lot of them have gone uh, by way of the acquisition side and now work for these larger institutions. So mm-hmm. that trend is now carried over into dermatology and dermatology on a national level. You have these really, really big um, dermatology groups or platforms, kind of what we call it in the industry. Um, there's like integrated in advance and, and several others that have this huge operating arm and we're much smaller in comparison. We're only again, 23 clinics and we have a competitor here in California, CSI, they have 60 clinics. So they're double our size and they go up and down the state up, up and down the state and they actually overlay really nicely with our geography. So we're competing against them. We're competing against, um, some other 25, 30 clinic size groups here in the Bay area. And then we compete against Stanford and Sutter and UCSF, which have, you know, very prestigious uh, dermatology networks and clinics. Yeah. And then, I mean, from what I hear also, even as you're recruiting that referral base or you're recruiting all these people into your network, there's also a lot of different like state bylaws and things that, that are, that complicate the matter even more as you bring those people in by way of referral and stuff too, right. To kind of prevent monopolies and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to touch base on that right now? (laughs) because <laughs> that, yeah, that's I a mean, whole that's a whole can of worms outside of the trends you know i guess if you're kind of setting the framework for how california functions and i'll try to summarize it in a very uh, coherent way but california has a law here a lot of states have it now but it's called the corporate practice of medicine mm-hmm. and it actually prohibits a hospital and it prohibits a hospital to employ a, a physician directly so a hospital cannot employ a physician directly in the state of california outside of an academic or research institution. So when you go to your local community hospital, as long as it doesn't say UCSF or or Stanford Healthcare on it, every physician you see is not employed by the hospital, but those are the people providing you care in the hospital. So all the physicians that you see in a hospital are contracted with the hospital by way of a PSA or physician services agreement. Um, And they're generally providers in local communities or they're in affiliated medical groups and they constantly compete to get these contracts, renegotiate these contracts on whatever cadence it it runs on. And and those are the positions really staffing and employing the hospital. But again, not directly uh, employed through the facility in which you're getting the care from. 
And that's yeah. just a, a nuance of California. You could go to Texas, it could be completely different. And the doctor you see in the hospital is actually employed directly through the hospital system. I'm sure you love that as a recruiter, just all those different hoops that you have to jump through to get people in. Yeah, it's easier on the private practice side. A lot of that doesn't necessarily apply to us, but working at you know Stanford, Sutter, and in San Diego at a medical group down there, which also had hospital affiliation, it becomes difficult. But at the same time, it's just a matter of explanation. Again, for sure. all intents and purposes, the physician and the patient are completely unaware of this. It really just comes down to the funds flow and, and how the business is set up. Um, and each business having to have its own unique TIN or tax identification number and being its own corporate entity. It's how it's all structured really on the back end. Yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, speaking of cash flow and, and kind of compensation and stuff like that, um, I'm interested to learn a little bit more from you. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on the, kind of the comp modeling for the physicians and uh, reimbursement, payer mix, um, how that kind of affects obviously bringing somebody in or, or keeping somebody, um, I'm sure those kind of, those, uh, those factors play a part. Yeah. I mean, again, a huge can of worms, right? So I'm trying to find uh, what, where do we start with that topic of conversation? Right. But I, I guess it, the compensation is going to vary by the institution or the environment in which you're working. And sometimes mm -hmm. the comp is really predicated on the payer mix of the organization. And people are going to hear payer mix. What's that? Well, those are the health plans that you're contracted with to provide care. So, sure. um, yeah, so there's really two dominant um, reimbursement models from the payer side. One is fee for service and the other one is capitation. And mm -hmm. so you're a, a healthcare system or a network. You're probably going to have some mixture of both. Um, and at one end of the spectrum, you have Kaiser, which is, purely capitation. It's a capitated HMO model. And what that means, um, again, just to define an HMO or capitation, it means the group is getting reimbursed or the, or the network or the institution, whatever the employer providing the care is going to get reimbursed per member per month, a fixed fee. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, completely different than being in a fee for service environment. Fee for services, you're essentially paid by the click, right? So I'm only right. going to get uh, I'm only going to be able to generate charges when I actually render services and the HMO model is saying we're going to give you all this money up front and it's going to be up to you to manage it. And that's what we call risk plans or, or risk models, because then it's, you know, here's X amount of money. Here's your thousand patients we're paying you for. Now it's up to you to really manage the care and manage the utilization appropriately. Um, and if you exceed it, you're probably going to have to pay money back. But if you don't, you got to keep the surplus. So there is risk involved. Um, but if you're a really good system or really good at playing the HMO game or the value game, uh, then you can stand and make a, a pretty substantial profit and it becomes actually good. It's actually quite lucrative. I know from the patient side, patients say, oh gosh, my HMO plan, I hate it, right? Because I have to go through my primary care provider. Then I had to get authorization to go see the urologist. And then I had to get some other authorization or referral to go get an x-ray or some diagnostic service. Um, but in reality, when you look at the data, there's a lot of good data in California. Patients on HMO plans tend to have a lower cost point through the course of a year hmm. and tend to have better outcome on, on quality results and outcomes no in kidding. versus being in a That's fee for service environment. Yeah. So HMOs get a bad rap, but I can tell you just based on the data I've seen in working in HMO environments that you as a patient will likely spend roughly 40 to 50% less per year on your health, on your total health care, 
and you're probably going to end up being healthier. And it's because they're incentivized really on the preventative side. So they have to hit a certain percentage of the population needs to get mm-hmm. um, colonoscopy screenings, breast cancer screenings, right. tracking right. their, their, their H1C, et cetera, right? So that's the incentive for them. Like they want to be on top of those metrics to keep their population healthy. And then there's bonuses for them based on how healthy their population mm-hmm. is. And so there's a lot of nuances and intricacies working um, out there. So maybe you have a bad experience, but... Again, I think overall the patient benefits from from the HMO plan. Again, I'm not saying that fee-for-service environments are bad and PPO plans are bad. I'm just saying I think HMO plans sometimes get a bad rap. But again, yeah. the net result for a population of patients tends to be pretty favorable on the HMO side. So that brings up an interesting point. You mentioned utilization management. That's kind of a hot topic right now in the industry. Um, and um, it kind of ties into what you're talking about in terms of how to manage both the internal business of healthcare as well as the patient care side of things. Um, so what do you see on utilization management across industry? No, it's probably not like, so utilization management, uh, at least in my role, pretty much non-existent, right? Cause I'm just, I'm just looking at growth, but I've certainly seen it play out, um, in other systems, but I, I guess Pete, better question is what specifically do you want to know? What, what can I answer for you? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the trends that I've been seeing uh, online as well with conversations with people is the concept of quiet quitting. You know, people people across industries, not just healthcare, kind of scaling back a little bit on the hours they put into a job or how much overtime they put in and, and that having like this kind of hidden effect on business um, and healthcare. So I'm curious, you know, given the fact you're in the business of healthcare and you're focused on, you know, understanding how everything fits together. Um, I wonder if the audience would be interested to hear like what are the trends you're seeing? You mentioned some earlier about you know someone going from like a full-time FTE person to maybe 80%. They're still there in the job, but they're just not putting as many hours yeah. or, or rounds in. Like, and what does that impact have on the business in your catbird seat? You know, yeah, yeah. Vision? So great, great question. And I'm happy to talk about it. And uh, again, I see things very myopically. So I, I've only seen it from the business standpoint. And I'm sure you can get a handful of qualified experts to talk about their experience, especially primary care providers. So whatever I say, I'm not trying to take away anything from them, but I'm just looking at the trends in the data. And if, um, you know, one of my previous employers, you know, we probably had somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 primary care providers. So let's say on average, um, that's 350 people. If they were working out at 1.0, that you'd be creating access for patients. That's what it boils down to is how much access are you creating for a new patient visit, because that's how you're going to grow. You're only going to grow by getting new patients into your system than being able to treat them. So it's all right. based on, on access. And access is intimately tied to how many FTs you have available providing that access, right? So that's kind of the concept. And what we, what we learned and what we were tracking is, again, in general, a, a new provider would join us at a 1.0 FT. So this would equate to about four and a half days a week of access in a clinic. And then you fast forward into the course of their career, let's say five years down the road, the average population now is running on a 0.7 FTE. So mm-hmm. I just lost roughly 30% of that person's available um, capacity to see new mm-hmm. patients. And so fractional quitting has become a really big issue, especially in primary care, because a primary care job is so difficult to sustain at a 1.0 FTE. And a lot of that has to do with the patient management, the EMR system, all the follow-up questions you're getting from patients, the prescription refills, the lab follow-ups. It's become this really, really big job, and it's, it's become unsustainable for a lot of people. And so naturally, they say, well, instead of working four and a half days, I'm going to work four 
or instead of working four, I'm going to dial down to three and a half days so I can have some quality of life or quality of work balance, life work balance, I should say. Um, but from the business side, if I let everyone do that, you know, I think we were losing somewhere in the neighborhood of five FTEs. It's as if five people had left the organization right. just in fractional quitting on a yearly basis. So now look at it from this way. I'm, I'm a business. I'm trying to grow my patient population. I have to meet all the natural attrition that's going to occur, right? There's some, you know, eight to right. 10% natural attrition of just year over year turnover. And then I want to add physicians on top of that. But I've kind of made it harder on myself because now I got to go find five new people to backfill for all this mm-hmm. uh, fractional quitting. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, it's, it's really hard to have a net gain in a provider population when you have a higher level of attrition and you have fractional quitting mm-hmm. working, against, working against you from the business side to grow your physician population. So that, that was definitely an issue I think everyone's dealing with. And, you know, you can probably extend it one step further and just talk about the Bay Area, the high cost of living, your primary care provider. Mm-hmm. You're lucky to be making, you know, two seventy five, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000. Well, that sounds like a lot of money to most people. But, you know, some of the places we operate in, like Mountain View, Palo Alto, or, I, you know, this is a previous group I work with. You're trying to live in Mountain View and Palo Alto and get into the housing market there. Good luck. You know, everything's two and a half, three million dollars. You're you're never going to make it on two hundred seventy five thousand or three hundred thousand dollars of income. So you have to get really creative with how you reimburse physicians and what kind of programs you set up to help them get into the housing market, whether it's a housing assistance program or loan assistance program, signing bonuses, these other instruments you can use to attract people to get them to be in these high cost of living areas. Because all things being equal, if you don't need to be in California, well, shoot. I'm going to take my $300,000. I'm going to go live in Missouri. I'm going to have three acres and a 5,000 square foot home and live like a king, right? So you're going to pay a premium to be in California. And that's added a lot of pressure on health systems to recruit people, not just to come, but to stay here long term, right? Because the other thing you don't want to deal with is a lot of turnover. And so retention is just the other side of recruitment. How are you going to retain people here for the long term? Keep them, keep them happy, make the job sustainable. Uh, and again, working in uh, uh, what seems to be a cost of living area that just continues to go up and up and up year over year. Yeah. And that, that turnover and that quiet quitting is probably another, uh, you know, advantage of joining a group like you guys, right? Cause you essentially kind of take that off of their, their shoulders off of their plates and you guys can kind of handle um, you know, they don't have to deal with turnover in their billing department or their front office person leaving or something like that, because essentially that's you guys that are handling all that. Is that right? Yeah, to, to some degree. I think if we're making an apples to apples comparison, right? So we're looking at the primary care workforce and we're talking about that. It really comes down to the cost structure, the environment of the employer. Right. So they can't really afford to lose another primary care provider or afford to lose another dermatologist because, of the way the funds flow work on the reimbursement side, their margins are like razor thin on the health, on the healthcare systems. People don't realize how thin those margins are because you have these big cohorts of cardiologists who really operate. They, they don't really turn a profit. You know, I'm not disparaging cardiologists anyways, but you put them into these high cost structure environments, these large multi-specialty groups, and you can't capture the ancillary income that you're going to operate at a loss. So you need your, high income producers or high revenue producers help subsidize some of the loss and some of the other service lines. Mm-hmm. But we don't deal with that in dermatology. We're just all dermatology uh, and right. we have a different business model. And so we can afford to let people work three and a half, four days, four and a half days a week. And it's not going to hurt us in the same way it's going to hurt that equation 
over on the, on the system side. And the system side, I'm referring to hospitals, medical groups, integrated healthcare delivery systems. Yeah. We don't have any of that problem. And in fact, when we're recruiting physicians, we like them to dictate to us what they want to do, how many days a week they want to work, what they're comfortable with. And if they want to scale down half a day or a day a week later on in their career, great, because they're on a different compensation model. And so they're, they're essentially going to eat what they kill. Um, so it doesn't necessarily hurt us as much. You know, we're still worried about making sure our clinics are staffed appropriately and we're using our clinical space, um, you know, trying to maximize it. But it's not the end of the world for us to have people scale down a little bit, especially later on into the career, because that's natural. Hopefully that's as, as concise of an explanation as I can give that the that's, difference is. That's interesting. Yeah. I, f- I feel like our conversation could be limitless. I feel like you have so much insight on the business side. I mean, right. there's a whole host of conversations we want to dig into, but you know, for an for an audience, as we kind of come to a close on our show today, what are the key things you would tell you know an up and coming physician looking to make changes? Maybe they're struggling with that work life balance thing. What should they be thinking about on the business side of health, and what should they be thinking about on kind of the quality of life side of health? Yeah, I, I guess that's really specific to um, what, what field of medicine they're in. And so I guess maybe for the purpose of this conversation, let's talk about dermatology and what I would say to a dermatologist, since I think that's uh, kind of germane to, to yeah. what I do in, in my conversation here with you guys. But I, I would say to a dermatologist coming to the Bay Area, um, they should evaluate all three of the major models, right? Um, so uh, one is the private practice group, which which would be us or this large, you know, it's kind of single specialty or, you know, we're, we're kind of in between the, the hospital system and being in a totally independent private practice. Look at, look at us, go look at a Kaiser and a Stanford or a Sutter, see what it's like to be in a big group model. And then go look at some of the smaller independent physicians who are still doing great out there on their own. And maybe they have one or two clinics and three or four providers. And then try to figure out where you're going to be happiest in, right? Because all of them are going to have pros and cons, but it's really trying to figure out for you as a physician, what model is going to suit your personality and your kind of clinical behaviors, and you may not know what those are yet, but you got to try to tease it out by having points of comparison when you go out and start interviewing. Um, because I think that I think the large system model, you look at a resident, and we face this all the time, residents come from big training centers. They are surrounded by other residents and attendees. And so they gravitate naturally to a Sutter or a Stanford because they're going to be in this big medical office building with subspecialists and primary care providers. And they'll have ancillaries there, such as a lab and diagnostics. And they're going to feel like this is like a training center. I love this environment. I love being surrounded by people. And they're going to come see one of our clinics. And we may have two or three doctors and an MP and a PA. And they're like, whoa. This is way different than anything I had in training. I'm not comfortable with this and we might not appeal to them. So I, I kind of give that, that um, example of it's not necessarily everyone has something to offer each person. It's really just going to be about what that person wants or desires in, in a practice environment. And we're not going to appeal to everyone just like a Sutter isn't going to appeal to everyone the same way we are. Um, right. So that's, that's one piece of advice. And yeah, um, I think that's probably the, the largest one is, and the other thing too, I would tell people, I tell people this all the time, that they go into this decision out of training, you know, they're coming out of residency, it's their first job, and they think there's like some finality to it. Like, well, if I take this job, this is going to be it for 30 years, and oh my gosh, it's, I have all the pressure in the world, and I got to make the right decision. And it's like, no, the, actually, the data tells us that most people are going to leave that first job in the, you know, two to five years later, and they're going to find that second job. And there's just going to be that natural transition. 
because they didn't know what they wanted necessarily when they got into it. Um, and everyone kind of gets into a job and they find out, you know what, I don't really like this, but now I know what I do like and what I don't like. And now I have information for my next decision. So I tell people, it's not the end of the world. If you go into a job and it turns out it doesn't work out, you're going to be able to find something else, especially in dermatology. You're in such high demand. It's so easy to go transition and almost to a detriment. You know, if they don't like it. Well, let's go find the next thing, right? Because the grass is always greener on the other side. And I tell them the grass is greenest where you water it and try to convince them to stay. Um, but they have, you know, really it's they're, – they're in the driver's seat and they have all the opportunities. So don't look at it with so much pressure that this has to be the perfect decision. It just has to work for now. And if it doesn't, there's going to be another opportunity you can find down the road. That's great advice. Awesome. I like well, it. Dan, thanks for being on the show today. I think we got a lot of really great nuggets here that our listeners can take home with them. Um, and, you know, a lot of really great insight, especially on the business side of healthcare. And I uh, appreciate you being on today. Absolutely. Yeah, it was fun. Thank yeah, you for having thanks, me. Thanks, Pete, for showing up in your fancy shirt and uh, dropping a couple of dad jokes. That was great of you. <laughs> I've, got, I've got one more for you to close our episode strong. Okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. Why do, why do uh, dermatologists never uh, escape from prison? They're they're oh. afraid of a breakout. <laughs> oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Just all right. Take that away. Yeah. <laughs> Did you just come up with that uh, one? I'm just nonstop. Okay, that is just again. that is crazy. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I should never get them to stop. I should have you come play. give. Uh, we'll have you be the opening act at our next all provider meeting. Get some people to smile and laugh for us. Physicians love me, okay? Just just for the record. I've seen a lot of them on the show, and it's always a good time. I bet. But uh, but no, thank you again, Daniel. Great insights. Uh, we'll definitely be looking forward to the, getting this one out on, on, on the radio and to our listeners. Great. Thanks again, guys. Sounds good. And for all you guys listening out there, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe on all our social medias, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at KPP Podcast. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone who would make a great guest, feel free to reach out. Hope to see you next time.